0: We're close enough to twenty thirty that we can track these trends and see how they're playing out. They're playing out that China is clearly becoming become the world's preeminent economic power. I said earlier that world orders are distinct in that they, they penetrate very deeply within cultures. They govern the languages that people speak, the way they worship, the laws they observe and even the games that they play.
1: This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the Book Club, you get all new Haymarket titles Delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hello, my name is uh, Andrew basevich uh, one-time academic, currently president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to a conversation with Professor Alfred W. McCoy, author of an important and really fascinating new book, I'm gonna hold it up here, hope you can see it, Uh, To Govern the Globe, World Order and Catastrophic Change. I want you to remember that title, Because I hope by the time we get to the end of this conversation, you're going to rush out and buy yourself multiple uh, copies. Now, Professor McCoy is the Harrington, uh, holds the Harrington Chair in History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He is the author, by my count, of something like two dozen books, among them Policing America's Empire, prize winner from 2009 and in the shadows of the American century, the rise and decline of U.S. global power. Professor McCoy is just two years older than I am, but in the summertime, he rose. In the wintertime, he does cross-country skiing while I sit and get older by the day. So uh, I envy him, his youthful vigor. Here's how we're gonna proceed. I'm gonna interview Professor McCoy for half hour or so, maybe a little bit longer, we'll see how it goes. And then we'll go to the chat function to select some of your questions, either about to govern the globe or about other things that are on your mind that you'd like to hear him uh, uh, comment about. So with that, let's dive right in, or or perhaps I should say, let's grab an oar and start pulling. (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, uh, Professor McCoy and I have agreed to do this on a first name basis. So he's Al, I'm Andy. Al, this is by any measure, a big book. And two preliminary questions. What inspired you to, to write it, to take on this task? And as you set out on this
0: project, What did you hope or expect to achieve? First of all, the origin of the project. Uh, After 9-11, when America seemed to be at the peak of its power, marching about the globe, fighting terrorism, uh, and uh, Americans were talking as if American democracy and capitalism were the end of history, that the whole world would be remade in our image. It struck me and colleagues here at the University of Wisconsin we were witnessing imperial hubris of the First Order, and we launched a project called Empires in Transition, and we pulled together 140 academics, specialists in imperial history uh, from four continents, and we convened conferences in uh, Sydney, Melbourne, and Barcelona, uh, and we analyzed both the rise and decline of past European empires and the trajectory of U.S. power. And at the time that we were doing that project, it was clear that the U.S. power was was at a peak and was already beginning to decline. The signs were were, were, were fairly clear. But there wasn't a contender, uh, a kind of a catalyst that could accelerate that, that, that decline, that could supplant the United States. And so we started this project in 2004. By the time we were finished in 2012, 13, that contender had arrived in the form of China. The United States, at this apex of its imperial hubris, made a bipartisan, in retrospect, disastrous decision in 2001 that we would admit China to the World Trade Organization, the WTO, as an absolute equal in a stage with all the the access to global markets. Uh, And uh, we did it in the belief, the bipartisan belief, that American power was so awesome, so formidable that we could remake China in our image. And this is China, which by the way, until 1800 was for a thousand years, the most powerful nation on the planet. The creator and the possessor of the world's oldest civilization and the home of 20% of all humanity. So the hubris was phenomenal. And indeed China, which was on a fast rising economic trajectory anyway, uh, by 2014, had uh, accumulated $4 trillion in, in, in cash reserves, a, a, an unimaginable hoard of cash, and uh, was beginning to challenge US global power. So, the coincidence of this study that I was involved in with the rise of China is what led me to the current book, trying to track these trends uh, not only from the past into the present, but also into the future.
2: I hope I'll remember uh, to ask you uh, a little bit later on to identify, I think what you said were the early signs of America's decline. but but hold off on that. Uh, i want to I want to focus again on sort of the uh, the architecture of the book for a moment. Uh, basic organization really breaks down into into three parts. your your description of analysis of what you call three successive world orders. First, the Iberian Age, uh, you date from 1300 to 805. The British Imperial Order, dating from 1807 to 1943. And then Washington's World Order, dating from 1944, middle of World War II, latter part of World War II. And then significantly ending in 2020. So preliminary question, what exactly is a world order, uh, as you use the term, and how does it differ from, let's say,
0: an empire? Sure. The most powerful of empires at their apex of their, their reach and their might can create something called a world order. In very simple terms, empire represents power and a world order represents principle. Uh, every one of these major world orders you just described, the Iberian, the British, and the American, had this duality between power and principle. and. Whereas empires are, are seemingly mighty, awesome in their military of force, in, in their grand monuments, in their marching troops, their banners, well, the whole panoply of empire is overwhelmingly impressive. It's also going to be rather rather fragile and fleeting. And world orders, by by contrast, are they they don't have the, the territorial integrity, they don't have the armies, they don't have the might. Uh, they don't have all the accoutrements of power of an empire, but they're much more pervasive and they're much more persistent. World orders govern the languages that people speak, the laws that they that they observe, the way that they worship, and even the way that they they play. And so they pervade societies, even not just in the metropole of empire, in its subject territories, but beyond. And they permeate the world and they create a, a, a civilization and a world order. In which other nations, you know, who are participating and competing or subordinate to accept much of, the, uh, of these values that are enshrined in a world order. And so, in the case of the Iberian Age, um, it was an extraordinarily brutal conquest that established, let's say, the Spanish Empire in the Americas, destroyed the indigenous population of the Caribbean, cut Mexico's population down from something like 25 million to a little more than 1 million. Um, and in the midst of that slaughter, the Dominican uh, Catholic order that was very much a part of this conquest were conducting a missionary endeavor. They were appalled by what they witnessed firsthand. And many of the more idealistic and Dominican clerics came up with a, 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 an objection, arguing ultimately that that these were not pagans. These were humans and that all human beings were essentially equal in God's eyes and had human rights. And so in the Iberian age, you got not only the idea of of conquest and subjugation of non-Christian pagans, you also got the alternative principle uh, of of human rights that began to develop. In the British Imperial age, you had the same sort of duality. This debate over human rights developed and spread to the Protestant churches And in the 18th century, at the time when Britain was in control of the transatlantic slave trade, over half the slaves carried across the Atlantic in the latter half of the 18th century were carried on British ships. Among the the dissenting churches in the United Kingdom, the Methodists, uh, the Quakers, and even evangelical Anglicans, there was this debate over slavery, uh, an impassioned debate that led the British Parliament in 1897 to ban the slave trade. And then the British Navy from the end of the Napoleonic Wars through the 1880s to conduct nearly an 80-year campaign against the slave trade. So what you got then in the British age was power enshrined in empire and principle enshrined and human rights enshrined in the idea of fighting slavery. Again, there was a contradiction in that duality because at the same time the British were fighting slavery. They were expanding their empire and subjecting those people who were colonized to forced labor. In some European colonies, that could be up to 60 days a year, a uh, uh, non-paid, non-compensated, forced labor on colonial infrastructure. And so that was an advance in Italy, an imperfect one. And that led then in 1944-45, at the end of World War II, with this great cataclysm that uprooted the British imperial order, in which the United States, at the peak of its power, as its troops were fighting the Axis Alliance, and and emerging as the most powerful military on the planet. At that peak of power, the United States sat down with the allies and convened a conference in San Francisco when they drafted a charter for the United Nations, and they enshrined in that principles which have been the foundation of the American world order for the past 70 years. The idea of universal human rights, which were enshrined in the UN Charter and the UN Declaration of Human Rights, and also the idea that everybody should be a member of a human community and every human community has the right to sovereignty, to nationhood, which should be inviolable. So, colonialism, imperialism, that kind of demand, come to an end. A comprehensive answer. Now,
2: again, I want to focus a little bit on these three world orders. The the first one, the Iberian order, uh, lasts for five centuries. The second one, the British, lasts for a century and a half. The third order. The Washington based order uh, began basically when you and I were born, and it has, in your estimation, already ended. So, can you generalize about the factors that bring world orders to an end? Uh, and what are we to make of the fact that the duration of these successive world orders has been shrinking as we go
0: from one to the next? Sure. Uh, <clears throat> First of all, if, if empires rise and decline, because there's a lot of competition, that their, 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 their array of military and economic power is readily challenged, okay, so that over the past 500 years, there have been 90 empires, large and small, that have come and gone. But there have only been three world orders. And because world orders, as I said, were you know are pervasive, they embed themselves and become almost the fabric of a civilization, they're much more difficult to uproot, and it takes a a cataclysm. The First World Order, the Iberian emerged in the 14th century amidst the Black Death that killed 60% of the population of China, 60% of the population of Europe. It persisted for nearly a century with 15 to 20% of the infected areas losing population with each recurring round. So it was a, a great devastation that uprooted medieval Europe. It also was responsible for a major geopolitical change. In the 14th century, the the most powerful empire on the planet was the Mongol Empire, which extended from China, which they conquered all the way through the steppes of Asia, all the way to the edge of the Black Sea and the Danube River. And the Black Death just devastated the not only the Mongol Empire, but it was a demographic disaster for the peoples of the steppes who were the, the, the proponents of that empire. And so for the first time in a thousand years, no longer would the barbarians be riding out of the steppes to overrun Europe in successive waves. And that ended as a result of that, and that freed Europe to turn <clears throat> westward and begin the age of exploration. Uh, that Iberian Empire survived for 300 years, and it came to an end in the next great cataclysm, of, uh, the uh, Napoleonic Wars that continued for 20 years, ruled Europe killed roughly 6 million people. And that coincided with another factor the rise of the, the industrial age. Britain perfected coal fired steam engines, first large engines like the James Watt original steam engine of the 1780s that could power mines and textile industries. Then by the early 19th century, they began to downscale them into mobile units and put them on on trains and ships and and then in smaller factories and the age of steam was with us and the combination of the Industrial Revolution combined with the disruption of Napoleonic Wars ended the British Imperial era Uh, and they lasted for, as you said, about a century and a half until the great cataclysm of World War II which devastated much of the world and killed between 70 and 80 million people and out of that came a new world order. It was also the imperial age, the idea of empires and colonies. Uh, At the peak in 1900, there were 146 colonies covering 40% of the globe and over 30% of the world's population. You know, nationalism was emerging. And World War II, the four freedoms that Roosevelt announced in Churchill at the very beginning, meant that no longer was this imperial age sustainable. And the combination of the the devastation and then the emergence of nationalism and the aspirations for human freedom brought an end to the British
2: era. Well, we'll fast forward to the end of the American era, which you date to uh, 2020. Uh, Andy, can I correct you there? I'm sorry. 2030. 2030, okay, forgive me. but you're it's either in your estimation, it's either ending or it has ended. What what is what is the cataclysm that brings that world order
0: to an end? Uh, it's the conjuncture of I think two things. One, the waning of first of all, let's separate the the two the two forces here, the the power and the principle. The yeah. power which is global, US global hegemony. Okay, that is clearly waning by 2030. Okay, Uh, back in 2012, the US National Intelligence Council, which is sort of the supreme analytic body within the 16 or 17 members of the US intelligence community, they wrote a report. They write these futuristic reports, and they said that by 2030, if not a little bit earlier, China will have the largest economy in the world. PricewaterhouseCoopers, the international accounting firm, has said that by 2030, in terms of the real value of money purchasing power equity, China's economy by 2030 will be 50% larger than
2: America's. So I'm I'm not questioning that, but maybe I'm making too much of the term cataclysm.
0: Uh,
2: And and believe me, uh, I would argue strongly that the United States uh, has made a total hash of things uh, in its governing its world order Particularly since uh, the end of the Cold War, but even that said, I'm not sure that I see cataclysm as a as a as an accurate description. Uh, Hubris is certainly involved, uh, mismanagement, uh, overreaching, uh, radically misunderstanding the effectiveness of American military power, for example, in trying to reorder the. Uh, the, the greater Middle East,
0: but I'm not seeing cataclysm. So can you help me with cataclysm? Sure. All of that goes to the decline of U.S. power. But as I said earlier, world orders are separate and apart. They can oftentimes outlast the imperial power. For example, let's go back to the Iberian Age. The Iberian Age started roughly in 1500. Uh, by 1600, the Iberian powers, Spain and Portugal, had been superseded by by Holland initially and then Britain. But nonetheless, the Iberian age and its organizing principles continue for another 200 years. So the question we're facing is, if if U.S. global power is coming to an end around about 2030, and China will become the largest economy and maybe even a a peer military power, can the world order that the United States created embodying these principles of human rights and universal sovereignty of, of all nations, can they survive the decline of U.S. global power, okay, and the, the catastrophe, the coincidence of U.S. decline, a major geopolitical shift, and the, the catastrophe of climate change coinciding with escalating intensity, already arriving much more quickly than anybody could imagine, all right, is going to, to produce a real challenge to the U.S. world order, okay? The, but the U.S. world order was not just grounded on those two principles. It was underwritten by a fabric of the international rule of law, one of the key artifacts of U.S. global power from the time we emerged in the 1890s as a, a key power, and then a kind of spirit of cooperation among nations. Uh, and this spirit of cooperation is being fundamentally challenged by climate change, okay? Okay. Uh, by 2050, the World Bank and the U.N. calculate that there are going to be 200 million climate change refugees. Some estimates go as high as 1.2 billion. And it's the, it, it's going to build every year up until that point. Okay? It, it so let's, let's think about the impact that this is going to have upon the world order. Let's go back to 2016, 2018, when there were... Uh, Climate change refugees turning up in Turkey, crossing to the Greek islands, uh, coming from basically West Africa and sub-Saharan Africa, crossing the Sahara uh, and and the Mediterranean into the European Union, and then Central Americans and some Mexicans turning up in the U.S. border. The arrival of those refugees sparked a surge in ultra-nationalism, manifest by the rise of a host of right-wing parties in Europe, Britain's Brexit, the Donald Trump campaign, Build the Wall. And when you add up the Middle Easterners, the Africans, and the Central Americans, that's only two million people that were put in motion. Well, imagine what's going to happen to the world order when we're talking about tens of millions of people. And so I think that what's going to happen is that the spirit of cooperation that infuses the U.S. world order is going to be battered, and China is actively trying to supplant. That the entire apparatus of the international organizations that the US has built with kind of an alternative structure. And the spirit underlying all of the financial and diplomatic arrangements that China makes is essentially a kind of cash and carry internationalism, uh, mutual self interest, shorn of human rights, of principles of probity. Uh, regime performance, integrity, all And so, as the cooperation erodes under the pressure of climate change and climate change refugees, China's more self-interested form of governance is going to come to the fore. And it's the combination of the US decline, the rise of China, and then the pressure of climate change. That cataclysm is going to drive, I think, the collapse of the US world order and it's replaced with a Chinese world order.
2: Okay, so uh, I tend to think of myself as a pessimist. Not anymore. I have met a pessimist. <laughs> <laughs> but, but let me push back a little bit. Uh, w- world orders are, are characterized by a particular conception of power and principle. The The Washington world order, as I understand your description, uh, has emphasized human rights, has emphasized uh, what we might call an an enlightened uh, internationalism. Uh, that's, That's the positive spin on the American empire, I think. We could talk about the negative spin. There's a lot of negatives. So... And I certainly agree with you, the United States is now a declining power. But is it not possible for others to embrace those principles that defined Washington's world order in order to extend that order? That somebody, some other entity, becomes the principal sponsor? uh, And therefore, the United States declines, but the world order that the United States helped to bring into existence can potentially continue to exist despite the challenges posed by the People's Republic of China. What's wrong with that scenario that I just
0: described? Uh, I think, well, first of all, it's possible, but it seems to me increasingly unlikely because China is emerging not only as the world's largest economy, uh, you know, the major trading partner of, of, of dozens of nations around the world, the major trading partner of entire continents, Okay, and, and with that comes China's influence in the realm of diplomacy and law. Um, the, that succession of, of world orders and the, the, the continuation is something that evolved for 500 years within a Western legal tradition, okay? Starting in the Iberian Age, uh, when those Spanish slaughters took place in the Caribbean, and the the cleric Bartolome de las Casas, a Dominican priest, observed those firsthand and wrote not only the searing critique of Spanish colonial rule, but also came to this realization that that all human beings... uh, were not Christian pagan, but they all shared a universal humanity. Um, and that idea grew among the debates within the Dominican clerics, and the great Spanish jurist and other Dominican priests, Francisco de Victoria, gave his lectures, and those lectures were written down. And a hundred years later, they were read by Hugo Grotius, who is the, the great Dutch legal scholar we consider him many, the architect of international law and the modern intellectual system. He read Victoria's lectures and he elaborated those principles and those continued and influenced, for example, the British churches in the late 18th century when they launched the campaign against the slave trade. They influenced the Quakers here in the United States. So there was a continuous dialogue, which is one of the reasons that I wrote the book and one of the things I learned in tracing this long thread of history. There was this continuous dialogue This continuous evolution and deepening and broadening of the concept of human rights within this Western intellectual community. And now we're faced with in in the succession of imperial powers and world orders from the Iberian to the Dutch to the British, the American, and now the Chinese. For the first time, we have a world power that's arriving who has not been a part of this Western dialogue. This Western tradition of human rights was in many ways a victim of Western imperialism and doesn't put much store by this tradition which it doesn't share at all. So we have, for the first time, a world power that, unlike any before, has not participated in in this evolution of human rights. That that assumes, I
2: think, that uh, Chinese Chinese policy uh, is fixed, set. It it follows an azimuth, and there's no deviating from that asthma. I might cite the history of the United States as an example of a power that changes its azimuth when it becomes convenient uh, to do so I mean it seems to me that in our in our rise to power we dating it from the creation of the Anglo-American colonies, uh, certainly up through, let's say, World War I. uh, Maybe you disagree with this. I don't think there was a heck of a lot of emphasis on human rights and international cooperation. Uh, The the trajectory of American behavior was, in, in my interpretation, sort of opportunistic expansionism. When we saw something we needed or wanted, we took it. Now, with World War I, the role of Woodrow Wilson, certainly the impact of World War II, uh, the, the language that American leaders use becomes a lot different. But this suggests, I think, the possibility of, 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 of adjusting. So I guess it's a very circuitous uh, question,
0: but why can't why can't China change? Okay, why- Well, first of all, right? You've got a very good point, point. Uh, and what you've cited is the power side of the equation, right? Um, you reference, for example, the United States as a an expanding global power and imperial power taking territory as it wanted willy nilly, et cetera. Okay, one of the things that uh, that, that I learned in studying the formation of world orders over the past 500 years and and studied this this duality between power and principle. Empire embodies power. Uh, Empires do as they need to do to exercise and expand their power. The check on that, the principle side, comes from civil society. The Dominicans and the uh, Spanish clerics were the the embodiment of, of Iberian civil society. And it was their experience their dialogue with the state, with the monarchy, that led to this this evolution of human rights that provided a check on the Spanish crown, that forced various attempts at reforms uh, during the 16th century. The same thing happened in the 18th century and 19th century in Britain. It was civil society. It was the dissident churches, the Quakers, the Methodists, the Anglican evangelicals that articulated the concept of, 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 of or articulate the concept of human rights uh, that made the slave trade an absolute abomination. And they fought in parliament for decades, for a quarter century, to win that political victory, right? And to then institutionalize that in the conduct of the British Empire. The same thing happened in the United States. You know, when the UN was founded, it was founded, I'm sure you know this, this you know, this, you taught this, I'm sure, is that the Dumbarton Oaks Conference in 1944 in Washington, DC, when the powers got together, they had the idea of the UN is basically a kind of imperialist club that would be embodied in the Security Council. And as FDR put it, the General Assembly would be something for the little countries to get together and blow off steam. Then they took it to San Francisco, where organizations like uh, you know Bonai Barith and the uh, NAACP. Uh, Latin American republics turned up, having had a prior conference, and it was an open discussion and debate that reconstituted the, the UN, gave power to the General Assembly, shrine principles in the Charter, and, and you know, and, and that didn't satisfy the delegates and the representatives of these civil society groups. They conducted a campaign to reconvene and, and to, to establish a Human Rights Commission on Eleanor Roosevelt, and again. More civil society agitation led to the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Now, why can't that happen in China? Well, because China is a communist dictatorship that has developed, using contemporary technology, the world's most sophisticated surveillance. And the New York Times Mm -hmm. has documented in recent articles the way that that surveillance is reaching in and absolutely crushing every form of dissent inside China. So what we mean what we have is a, a, a world power emerging who has not participated in this dialogue of human rights that might influence the elites, and at the same time has a powerful apparatus to stifle dissent and to prevent Chinese civil society, which was there and which is you know growing ever more feeble as this as as Xi Jinping and his government extends their, their repressive tentacles and 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 quashes dissent inside China. That means that the azimuth, as you put it, is going to be limited in its capacity to recalibrate. So that duality between state representing power and civil society representing principle in this dialogue that over the centuries produced this kind of progress is still in China under current circumstances.
1: If you're enjoying the Haymarket Live series, you'll also be interested in a new book from Haymarket, Angela Davis, an autobiography. Featuring a substantial new introduction by the author, Angela Davis an Autobiography is a classic account of a life in struggle. Angela Davis has been a political activist at the cutting edge of the black liberation, feminist, queer, and prison abolitionist movements for more than 50 years. First published and edited by Toni Morrison in 1974, Angela Davis an Autobiography is a powerful and commanding account of her early years of political activity. With warmth, brilliance, humor, and conviction, Davis describes her journey from a childhood on Dynamite Hill in Birmingham, Alabama, to one of the most significant political trials of the century. From her political activity in a New York high school, to her work with the US Communist Party, the Black Panther Party, and the Soledad Brothers. And from the faculty of the philosophy department at UCLA, to the FBI's list of the 10 most wanted fugitives. Find Angela Davis, an autobiography at haymarketbooks.org.
0: That's why I'm pessimistic about the azimuth recalibrating. So I I want to,
2: whoever is helping us run this, I I just want to say that I don't see any questions in the chat box. Uh, So somebody needs to tell me, how to fix that so that we can begin to, okay, there's one. All right. Uh, but, uh, uh Al, what, what, one last question for you before we go to the chat chapter seven of the book, the climate change in the 21st century, would you share your thoughts? Again, you just made a very powerful argument about this fixed azimuth and, and, uh, the negative, the negative aspects of a world system uh, that is uh, governed by the People's Republic. Talk to us, if you would, about how uh, the climate crisis will change that, could change that, or why it won't change that.
0: Sure. <clears throat> so, if there's a possibility that around 2030, U.S. global power fades and as China rises, that they begin to erode very much the, the rule of law, uh, the fabric of human rights, both of which China's made very clear has no time for whatsoever, um, <clears throat> very much opposed to, okay, and that there's a, a new, more, I um, should I say, uh, self-interested form of international order taking place uh, in which China becomes not only the, the world's great global hegemon, but the architect of a, of a very different kind of world order uh, grounded in national mutual self-advantage. Okay, so the question is, how long might this war last? Um, well, <sighs> around 2050, China is going to be among all of the, the, the major industrial powers, arguably the most affected by climate change. Uh, by 2050, the scientific research is pretty clear that uh, the rising seas are going to submerge most, if not all, of Shanghai. Shanghai was, was a coastal city, it was dredged from swamp and sea beginning in the 15th century, and to the swamp and sea it is going to return. That's a city of 18 million people. Uh, it's a, a major econ- economic engine uh, in northeastern China. Other coastal cities are going to be similarly adversely affected. Somewhere around 2060, 2070, <coughs> the North China Plain, which is currently home to 400 million people, it's that area between Shanghai and Beijing. It's China's historic agricultural and industrial heartland, Um, uh, according to research, um, global warming is actually global heating. And this is going to be the most adversely affected by global warming. There will be hundreds of extreme weather events. And starting around 2060, 2070, uh, the the North China Plain is going to have uh, the first of five episodes of 35 degrees centigrade wet bulb temperature. Now, what does that mean? That's the balance of heat and humidity when the human body can't sweat. So a healthy adult at rest is dead in six hours under 35 degree wet bulb temperature. And China's gonna have five major episodes as projected of this, so that this vast area, home to 400 million people today, nearly a third of China's population, is going to become one of the least habitable areas on the planet. In other words, China is going to be faced with such enormous climate change adversity that it is going to be forced to retreat from whatever so, international commitments it has. So, so
2: so, I'm a guy who's so technologically challenged that I can't even figure out how to get questions out of the chat box. And I don't know China well. But it seems to me that... Uh, They are exceedingly sophisticated. They are technologically advanced. Your forecast, and I'm trying to smoke you out here a little bit on this, your forecast says that uh, either there is no technological fix for this uh, debacle or that the Chinese government is not going to be smart enough to figure out uh, what that, that fix is. Or am I misreading you?
0: Um, well, first of all, China is using its its technology for its military development, for pell mell industrial development. And uh, China, although they had the Glasgow conference, got together with the United States through the work of Ambassador, former Secretary of State Kerry, and they made a joint declaration about climate change. When you read that declaration, uh, China says that they are going to start. Uh, Dealing with climate change, and I think what they say was the 14th five-year plan. Okay, that doesn't start till 2025. Right now, China is building so much coal-fired electrical power in China itself and as a part of the Belt and Road Initiative that if uh, if all of those projected power plants come in line, according to the UN Secretary General Pisteras, that all the progress that's been made since 2015 on climate change will be wiped away. Okay. So China uh, China's duality, okay like all world orders, okay, uh, its duality is, is this. Uh, as Xi Jinping likes to state on international podiums, China has through its industrial development uplifted 60 million Chinese from poverty. It's expending 1.2 trillion dollars in this massive belt and road initiative, which is building infrastructure across uh, Eurasia and Africa, build, bringing hundreds of millions of people through this infrastructure into the world economy people that were essentially forgotten by the liberal international order. Okay, so that's the, the positive side of the Chinese uh, world system. The, the negative side is they're doing it uh, through this coal-fired uh, uh, quick and easy road to electric, electrical generation in their belt and road recipients and in their own economy so that they are over the even the medium term, China is the source of 30% of all of the greenhouse gas emissions in the world today. 30%, okay? We're, we're 14% and declining, they're 30% and rising, okay? So, their technology is in fact, going in the opposite direction. They're they're accelerating climate change, right? and they're not even going to stop. And, and, and Xi Jinping has said that, you know, that they will be carbon neutral by 2060. Well, by that time, Shanghai is going to be underwater. And, and one thing we're learning about climate change is that it's it's happening more rapidly with greater adverse impacts than we could ever imagine even 10 years ago. I mean, think of the Australian wildfires, the California wildfires. you know, The storms that we're seeing in the United States, it, it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's accelerating. The, the collapse, the accelerated collapse of the Floyd's Grace Glacier in Antarctica, which is the size of Florida. And which, if that disappears, can by itself raise the level of the oceans by two or three feet. Okay. That's three to five years away from the kind of bastions of the of the frozen ice that are holding that ocean place collapsing and it start to fragment and add in an accelerated way. So, so there, there are all kinds of things occurring that indicate that climate change is accelerating more rapidly than than. Than, than any technology, including China's, which by the way, is not being used to remediate the situation. Let's go to some questions.
2: Uh, and the first one is by uh, Derek Mangino Cervent. The Washington World Order <clears throat> has ended, he writes, yet people talk as if it, as if the United States was still the number one power. I think the people he means be the American people. Why is that? And when will our ideas be updated by the truth? Uh,
0: if we look to the British okay, uh, as, a, as an example of an empire that faded, uh, the, the British Conservative Party, and representing the, basically the British aristocracy, industrial landed aristocracy, uh, uh, at the same time that they, they knew rationally that the British power was fading. You know, they, they clung to it desperately, uh, and then they, you know, uh, they did something that, in, in retrospect, I mean, at the time it was a disaster. They decided that when Nasser nationalized the Suez Canal. Which they identified as the linchpin between uh, Britain's position uh, in, in Europe and, and its Asian Empire. That they they launched this massive invasion, six aircraft carriers with the French, uh, the Israeli invasion of the Sinai Peninsula, and you know they you know they 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 destroyed the Egyptian air force. <clears throat> the Israelis smashed the Egyptian tanks in the Sinai Desert campaign, and it looked like they were as they stormed ashore at the north end of the canal, that they were gonna score this grand imperial victory. Two things happened. One, Nasser, who understood geopolitics, simply got some rusting old freighters and threw them with rocks and sank them at the north end of the canal. And then the other thing was, is that Britain, of course, was a a fated empire. The pound sterling, which had been basically global reserve currency for the past two centuries, uh, trembled at the brink of collapse. And the IMF's first, major bailout of a currency was not for the Mexican peso, it was for the British pound in the aftermath of Suez, and they collapsed. In other words, the British were living in the illusion that they had this, this massive military imperial power and, and that they could exercise that. And so I think that what happens with most powers is that as, their, as, as, as empire fades, Society becomes the leaders, much of the population become intensely attached to to power as it's slipping away, and become increasingly, well, unable to recognize the reality of its decline, to manage it effectively, and they become vulnerable to what's known as micro militarism. You know, uh, um, um, ambitious, overly ambitious. Uh, military strikes that are going to somehow magically recover imperial power.
2: I, I was just re- rereading your section on Suez uh, today, and I, I must admit I find that one of the most fascinating chapters of uh, or episodes of of twentieth of century history. Uh, but it it did, I think, uh, deliver. A rather sharp lesson to British leaders. I mean, it did, uh, I think, uh, end uh, Britain's claim uh, to being, you know, in the very top uh, echelon of American global powers. It was a an instructive humiliation in that sense. Uh, I think the, the person asking this question. Is is asking, have we suffered any comparable humiliation that is going to change American, Ameri- the understanding that Americans have about the standing and status of the United States, or is that is our Suez, uh, you know, coming around the corner and is it going to smack us in the face one of these days?
0: I think we've already had our military misadventure uh, in in the Middle East, I mean, you know. I- in 2001, as China was beginning its, you know, first of all, it had 20 years of sustained economic growth prior to this. But as it was really about to launch its its rise economically, okay, Washington was completely unmindful of the potential medium-term challenge from China. And so we decided at this apex of power, you know, in this moment of the supreme imperial hubris when, you know, It was the end of history in which we were, in fact, we were actively doing it throughout the 1990s. We were breaking down any kind of restraint on free markets. We laid hundreds of thousands of miles of fiber optic cable around the the globe, and we laid the foundation for a unified global economy, capitalist free market under American leadership. And we began working assiduously to, to transform governments into Governments in our image that were democratic and capitalist, and at this apex, you know, the neoconservatives in Washington, in the Bush administration, got the idea that we could invade the Middle East and that we could conquer Iraq, set up the Green Zone around Baghdad, and then transform the Middle East, the 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 cradle of Islamic civilization. We're going to make them secular and capitalist and democratic in our image. You know. Sweeping away, you know, over a millennium of of whatever Arab Islamic cultural traditions there might be. You know, I mean, uh, it, it was, you know, absolutely misbegotten. So while China was accumulating four trillion dollars in capital, uh, making themselves the workshop of the world, we spent eight trillion dollars in this misbeguided mission in the Middle East, venture capital that, could have been used for anything but that. And what do we do with it? We just what do we get out of it? Well, I mean, first of all geostrategically, if there was any rationality to getting into the Middle East, it was to secure a lasting secure lean on their region's oil, which is still the world's greatest oil concern. And in retrospect, we were securing a, a lasting lean on the Middle Eastern oil at about the same time that oil was joining cordwood and coal in the dustbin of history. So it was geostrategically absolutely misguided.
2: Well, I I certainly agree with that uh, judgment a thousand percent. But I think the question that's being asked relates to uh, the extent to which either American elites or the American public more generally uh, learn from all that. They share the indictment that you just rather compellingly uh, delivered. When I when I try to understand the uh, the direction of U.S. policy, particularly vis-a-vis the People's Republic, but we also might say uh, not to be ignored vis-a-vis uh, Russia, uh, it seems to me that some of those assumptions about the efficacy of American military power uh, are still you know pretty pretty darn uh, powerful and And so, the question becomes <laughs> have have we have we actually learned anything? Uh, as a result of our recent disappointments, disappointments that do suggest that uh, the United States may be in decline, and that by extension, the United States ought to do stuff differently, or are we just going to repeat those mistakes as we charge off into you know East Asia?
0: on that note. um. One thing, one of the most surprising findings in retrospect, it seems really obvious, by studying the succession of these major powers, starting with the Iberians, the Portuguese, the Spanish, the Dutch, the British, and now the United States. One thing that emerged from this study is that despite this amazing diversity of of geography and and national wealth, etc., all these powers shared one thing in common. Every emerging global hegemon had to capture control over the Eurasian landmass, right? Uh, and they used different te- techniques and technologies to do it. Okay, uh, from the Portuguese feiteria, which is basically a fortified port, and the caravel all the way to the British dreadnought, the, the powerful modern battleship. But all of them struggled to dominate the Eurasian landmass, and. Their power, their, their rise was coincident with that capacity for dominance. And their decline was was paralleled by their loss of control over that. The United States did the same. And this is, I think, one of the most surprising things about US foreign policy, that all this, this was, this was what we did during the Cold War. There's almost no awareness of this in the United States that we had a Eurasian strategy that our global power rested upon being the first power in a thousand years to dominate both axial ends of Eurasia, and when the Cold War started, we formed the NATO alliance. We got those massive military bases like Ramstein in Germany, and then, in between 1951 and 53, we find we signed four bilateral mutual defense pacts with Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, and Australia. And so we had this Pacific literal line of defense, and we built. Bases, massive military bases like Subic Bay and Clark Field, uh, plus dozens of bases in Japan, Okinawa, yeah. and then we we laid on top of that these chains of steel, military alliances from NATO to CENTO to Sito to ANZUS. You know, ultimately three massive U.S. naval, fleet, hundreds of bases, thousands actually of aircraft. Okay, that we arrayed around Eurasia to dominate. Okay, and. Uh, there is this general lack of awareness in the United States that, that China is successfully challenging our dominance of Eurasia. Okay, it's doing it two ways. Um, first of all, economically, on the Belt and Road Initiative, when Xi Jinping announced that in 2013, standing up in Kazakhstan, announced it, he said, that he was going to build an integrated infrastructure from the Baltic Sea to the Pacific Ocean, that would unite these two continents, Europe and Asia that are only separated by essentially distance. And he would lay down this trillion dollar infrastructure. China also then began building 40 ports that ring from the Indian Ocean around Africa, around Europe. And the combination of this transcontinental infrastructure and these ports give China a, a, a geopolitical grip on Eurasia and then China began challenging, and this is where the flashpoint now comes, challenging U.S. dominance over that Pacific littoral, which they call the first island chain. And their construction of bases in the Spratly Islands, those six bases in the Spratly Islands since 2014, the massive and sustained expansion of their navy, the construction of their nuclear submarine base at Long on uh, the coast of Hainan Island, uh, you know, swarming Taiwan with jets, swarming the East China Sea, challenging the Japanese, <coughs> and joint naval maneuvers with the Russian Navy around, butchered sailor, all of that. This basically the same challenge to push us back from the first island. But, but, but Al, so
2: connect what you just said to the prior uh, answer or discussion. The, the prior one was the one that, uh, Laid out the catastrophes that beckon—not our catastrophes, China's catastrophes. You know what's going to happen to Shanghai, what's what's going to happen to uh, the coastal areas that you described. Uh, when when that when that problem starts to bite, isn't the government isn't the Chinese government going to try to Respond in a way that may temper their uh, global ambitions as they try to focus on problem set uh, that is much closer to home. And I'm not sure they can do both those things. I think you might be. You gotta. You gotta pick one.
0: That <laughs> those undeniable environmental crises are set to occur around 2050. That's 30 years from now. Okay. Uh, China's rise as the permanent economic power is 2030. Uh, China, and China's technological modernization, its military development, um, uh, it's around 2025, 20, 26, 27, in there that they're, they're going to be uh, a, 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 not just a major economic power, but also a technological innovator. And that technology is spilling over into its military. So by 2030, I think we can say that China will not no longer probably be what's known as a near-peer military competitor, but a peer competitor with the United States. And since the, the conflict zone is between the China coast and the first island chain, 100 to 200 miles wide, from 100 to 200 miles from the China coast, the U.S. has to protect its forces 5,000 miles from Honolulu, Pearl Harbor. and uh, okay. Supposing we have two carriers, two supercarriers, that gives us 150 jets, right? China's got 2,200 jets that they can deploy. Plus, they've got these carrier killer missiles, which, by the statement of the United States, the U.S. Navy, they're, they're lethal missiles. Moreover, uh, in terms of, of of technological edge, yes, we hold uh, we have a much power more powerful military, but China is making breakthroughs in some critical areas like the secure satellite communications and above all, hypersonic missiles. Uh, all of our tests of hypersonic missiles have basically burned up in the incredible speed. China has apparently, last October, successfully tested a hypersonic missile, which has a, 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 a atmospheric orbits and comes in a low trajectory that makes it impossible to defend an aircraft carrier against a hypersonic missile.
2: So here's another question that uh, presses, presses your prophetic <laughs> uh, uh, insights even farther. Uh, somebody from from somebody, no. The question is, do you, and I think that means you, Al, do you foresee an alternative course of evolution or development which avoids the Chinese taking over the world? In other words, history, isn't ending, Uh, is it possible that there will evolve another world system, world order, at least conceptually that would uh, obviate uh, the rise of China? Uh, The questioner is not suggesting what that model looks like. I don't know that I know, uh, but that would seem to be to offer at least the prospect of some kind of hope. Well,
0: I mean, yes, anything is possible. But uh, if you track present trends, in you know, to the end of the decade, which is not that long, okay. Um, first of all, the military realm. I mean, it's uh, China and the U.S. over long term spend two to three percent of their gross domestic product on on, on military allocations. So, if China's economy is going to be 50% larger than ours by, by 2030, well, its its military appropriations will be, in terms of real value for for, for dollar, what they're spending, it, are going to be, you know, comparable or larger than our own. Um, you know, their their technology is growing apace. Um, so, no, I I, 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 I I think we we're close enough to 2030. But we can track these trends and see how they're playing out. They're playing out that China is clearly becoming become the world's preeminent economic power. That based on what's happening in China now, the idea of uh, a, a challenge to Chinese power um, uh, from within the country, some kind of mass uprising, some kind of eruption descent, doesn't seem very likely. The Chinese surveillance apparatus is very powerful. Moreover, the the regime still is providing jobs and growth in the economy, so no, it's not gonna break apart internally. So, you know, when you add that up, I see that there's nothing to stop China from becoming the world's preeminent power circle 2030. No. And, and, and furthermore, you know, if the US chooses to challenge China over Taiwan and there is some kind of conflict that breaks out, um, and the New York Times has reported that. As of 2019, the Pentagon war-gamed war with China over Taiwan, and China won 18 times in 18 war games. So, I mean, I I think it's pretty clear that uh, China would win that war. If not right now, today, by the end of the decade, certainly. So I don't see anything that's stopping China's trajectory of growth. Mm
2: -hmm. Okay, so I think it's in chapter six uh, where you talk about uh, Beijing's world system. I got sc- scratched notes here that <clears throat> maybe may not be accurate, so you should correct me. <clears throat> but I, I, th- I thought that in that chapter, you identify a major limitation on China's potential uh, to emerge as uh, leading, a, leading a new world order. Uh, and the limitation really is uh, soft power. It's 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 culture. Uh, and for, uh, forgive me if I'm misconstruing d- your argument, but basically that what China has in that realm is not particularly exportable. You know, it's not like Hollywood. Uh, it's it's not like Motown. Uh, and that and that in the realm of of culture, we confront what is both the weakness. I, I think you're suggesting of the. Chinese world system, and also <clears throat> some prospect of, uh, of 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 limiting or countering uh, Chinese power. Maybe maybe I am inaccurate there. So you know, correct me if I'm wrong. But but talk a little bit about China and uh, and soft power.
0: Sure. China's soft power weaknesses mean that the emerging world order that China is trying to construct is going to be. I think by its nature, a shallow world order. I said earlier that world orders are distinct in that they they penetrate very deeply within cultures. They govern the languages that people speak, the way they worship, the laws they observe, and even the games that they play, okay? And when you think about all of that, the British had that to a fairly well. I mean, they made English into the global language. They virtually invented and propagated modern sport. Um, uh, We've done, similar things, Uh, you know, the power of Hollywood films, the power of America's innovation in sport. The NBA is a global phenomenon with followers around the world. Um, uh, uh, And so we've been very successful in softball. Moreover, um, beginning with the British and then continuing with us, we not only propagated uh, treaties, uh, but we also propagated a, a system of organizing the world through the rule of law. As i said, this has been one of the key US projects from Elihu Root and Andrew Carnegie, circa 1900, right up to the present, okay? Uh, uh, so the Chinese, won as a communist bureaucracy, don't have a separation of courts from states, so they don't have much of a legal culture, all right? Uh, so, and they, they made it very clear when they lost a, a case filed by the Philippines over uh, the Philippines' exclusive economic zone uh, yeah. near the Spratly Islands, where China has one of its its, its its bases, uh, they took that case to the Permanent Court of Arbitration. The Philippines won a unanimous decision. China lost hands down, and they just waved it away as if it was of no consequence. So China has made it very clear that it has no interest in and no respect for the, the international legal system. Moreover, they they tried through something called the Confucian Institute. They they spent about half a billion dollars in propagating these Confucian institutes around the globe. There were over 100 of them at peak in the United States. And they were propagating Chinese language. So they gave free language instruction, Chinese culture. They, In comparison with the German, British, and American initiatives, they have been a spectacular failure. China has a, a, a complex recondite language that's very difficult to learn. You know, all the Western languages are basically 26 Roman characters. China is four to five thousand characters, and it's a tonal language, so even orally it's difficult. So, you know, China doesn't have the attributes of soft power. So, it is going to be a world order grounded in mutual self-interest. China is not going to be concerned about um, uh, government capacity integrity, they're not gonna be concerned with human rights, the advancement of women, minorities, all the rest. It's going to be basically a contractual world order of give and get. Okay? So it'll be it'll be thin, all right? It's gonna be it's not going to penetrate with the same kind of depth and resonance that every other world order has. And that's why when climate change begins to pound away at China and China is forced to retreat and use its resources, Circuit 2050 to 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 recover to build resilience against the impact of climate change. That world order, I think, will disappear very quickly and create, you know, a, a, an opening, a void. For the first time in five or six hundred years, we will have a world without a world order, and that will require, you know, innovation, thought. My <clears throat> my thinking on this, if I may, Andy um uh,
2: go, go ahead but uh, and yeah. and let's this might be a good comment i think to to wrap it up but go ahead
0: okay you know that so let's supposing that that this all that these projections and they're just projections come to pass that uh the climate change begins to pound away at china in a way that we've talked about that the these hundreds of millions of refugees are are unleashed you know poor people are uprooted from the the, the the ravaged seashores, the inundated floodplains, the aridification that occurs at the at the at the desert fringe around the world, and humanity is in motion. Two hundred million to a billion people in motion, and the world is is faced with monumental global disorder. You know, the most brutal kind of localized wars over resources, uh, um, particularly water, uh, um, and and so faced with global disorder of a monumental scale, what is possible to talk about is three modest reforms in which the world's nation would give up sovereignty in three areas. First of all, the the, the current climate treaty would no longer be voluntary. Emission levels would no longer be voluntary. If a nation were emitting greenhouse gases circa 2050 into the atmosphere and not converting Quickly to renewable energy, that would be regarded as a, as a as an aggression, a transgression against the international community, akin to let's say invading another country today, which should should entail some sanctions. Okay. Second, uh, the, uh, the 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 these millions of people that are in motion, the UN High Commissioner of Refugees or successor office or officer or, or office would have to make resettlement of refugees no longer voluntary, but almost mandatory, that that the world would become a lifeboat and everybody would have to take their their share of the survivors. And third, the voluntary transfers of capital, supposed to be hundred billion dollars, that was set at Paris. There was much discussion at the Glasgow UN conference on climate recently, how, how the major powers have not delivered the money these capital transfers would no longer be voluntary. They would have to become mandatory. There would have to be a systematic transfer from the prosperous, survived, temperate region to the tropics to allow the, the people that could survive and shelter in place to do so. Well, who's you
2: know? going to enforce all that, Al?
0: That's going to be, that is going to require, well, well first of all, we do have a, a a United Nations that does have enforcement powers. You know, the 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 enforcement
2: powers are in the Security Council, which, I mean, unfortunately, I would say, uh, basically is owned and operated by five nations that exercise the veto power. Those five nations by no means reflecting anything uh,
0: like what the actually existing global order is. Right. So one of the things I advocate in the book very clearly is that there are some very modest reforms that could take place inside the Security Council. For example, the whole idea of permanent members might need to be questioned. Okay, so uh, for example, instead of individual members, what about regional blocks? Things like the Arab League, uh, uh, the uh, ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, the Mercosur, uh, Latin American nations. That there would be regional representations. That these regional bodies would thereby hold the permanent seats. They would speak on behalf of multiple nations. Okay, and they would therefore have binding authority. In other words, that. Uh, if it were a more collegial body that reflected, as you said, the array of power today, let's say England's seat was given up to India, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right. which will, by the way, circa 2050, be the second largest economy in the world. All right. And Britain will be a very small island nation at that point. okay. So, so through, through reforms of the Security Council, it can become a genuinely collegial body. So that the nations of the world, when they make their decisions, they would be all participating and they would become binding because they would be collegial. <clears throat> this is where my pessimism is kicking in.
2: <laughs> I, I, I hear you. I mean, that, that, that looks to the possibility of, of nations behaving in uh, an enlightened way, taking into account the well-being of other nations enlightened self-interest but nonetheless enlightened well Al, let me just say that this has been it's a great book it's a provocative book uh, if anybody doubts that who's listening to this conversation this has been a very provocative and an, i think enlightening uh, conversation so uh, on behalf of the folks that are uh, uh, listening uh, to this uh, let me express express my gratitude to you both for writing the book uh, and for participating in this uh, in this exchange thanks so much
0: andy thank you for the some some pretty tough questions I, I, those are productive and good I, thank you talk
2: to you soon okay thank you andy. great bye 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 bye
1: thanks for listening if you like this episode subscribe to our podcast and to the haymarket books youtube channel where events like this one are hosted live And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.